Welcome to Now Playing's review of The Running Man. Are you ready for pain? Are you ready for suffering? Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. I told Killian I'd be back. I wouldn't want to be alive. Hosted by Arnie. That boy's one mean motherfucker. Stuart. A Cadre Trophy champion with over 30 lifetime kills. And Jacob. Last season's winners. No. Last season's losers. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. All right, now, all your runners, ready, get set, go! Today we're discussing The Running Man, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Maria Conchita Alonso, Yafet Koto, my Italian brother, Richard Dawson, directed by Paul Michael Glazer. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and I told you, I'll be back with King, and we are. <laughs> we are. We got Cujo last week, uh, Running Man this week, and Stewart in L.A. And this is the host who brings in the ratings, 10 points for my biceps alone, Jacob. And imagine what you do when you show your treasure trail. Well, I do sleep with two, sometimes three men a year. I- I'm a moral outrage. <laughs> I actually lied. Are we back with King, or are we here with a brand new author, Richard Bachman? Yeah, I didn't see any King in the credits. Nope. If you've been following along at Books and Nachos, I reviewed Bachman's first book, Rage, which is now out of print because it inspired, supposedly, so many school shootings that King couldn't bear to have it in print anymore. And then I've also done his second book, The Long Walk, The Running Man is Bachman's fourth book and last that was really written under the Bachman way. What happened was King had some early books that he wrote and he said, these things are good enough to be published. And he shopped them around and publishers rejected them. Some even after Carrie, he had The Running Man as a follow-up to Carrie and his publisher looked at it and said, no, give us something else. And so he ended up making a deal with a different publisher to print them under another name because they said that an author of King's stature could only publish one book a year. And King's like, well, I want these things out. So he was able to publish them under a pseudonym. And he also was doing it as an experiment to see if he could be as successful twice by just going under a completely fake name. And the answer is no. All of these books had very small first printings. They all fetch top dollar on the secondary market now that he's come out as Bachman. Most of these books were out of print by the time his fifth book, Thinner, the only book he wrote saying, I'm going to make this a Bachman book, that's the one that got him outed. And everybody knew by the time this movie came out, King was Bachman. They didn't know it when they bought the rights to this movie, though. George Linder, the producer, bought the rights. He's like, for a novelist with less than 100,000 copies in print, he's asking for a lot of money. And then when he found out it was Stephen King, he's like, holy shit, I got a bargain. (laughs) Yeah, I did read that multiple people with the production of this film didn't know they were working on a Stephen King adaptation. 
I think most people are going to feel that way. This is, again, King is disguising himself. This is his Chris Gaines phase, if you will. If you remember, <laughs> Garth Brooks did a similar thing and to prove that they have different sides to them. Did that fool anyone? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, this wasn't him trying to prove he had different sides because he wrote all of these books wanting to be published under his name. His real publisher just said they weren't good enough. They aren't. I feel that's pretty consistent. The Bachman books are never as satisfying as the King books. And yeah, I felt that way. I did listen to this as a book on tape. I didn't actually read it, but I did experience this novel as an oratory and it just didn't have a lot of hooks to it. It's a nice premise, but that's all you really need to take from this. And the fact that people remember this as an Arnold movie, I think is correct. This movie is completely colored by the fact of who they got to star in the movie. King would probably have no claim to this story at that point. I mean, this is Arnold through and through. Well, his name is nowhere on it. And contractually, they weren't allowed to use his name, even in the marketing of this film. Sure, when you saw critics reviewing it and interviews about it, they took every chance to bring up Stephen King's name. But in the trailer, on the poster, in the opening credits, all Bachman. And no, it was all Arnold. I agree with you, Stuart. I, this, I think, is the first R-rated film I ever saw, at least in movie theaters. I remember this came out in November, and... Luckily, we had relatives in town. We're able to all convince our parents, me and my cousins, four of us, between the ages of like 9 and 12, to go to an R-rated movie by ourselves because it was Arnold. And it worked. <laughs> like, those were the days where four kids could buy an R-rated ticket and go in and not get hassled by any movie theater employees. Not me, because I didn't see this in theaters. I remember this so vividly. I didn't know who Arnold was until 87 with Predator. And that wasn't the first R-rated movie I saw in theaters, but I remember going to see it with my older cousin, and it was at the mall where there were always jerks, and the ticket clerk hassled us and almost didn't sell me a ticket. Then I moved to Florida, and I was in the process of making all new friends. I'd been down there just a few months, and they were all going to see The Running Man, opening night, and it was R-rated. And I wanted to go, but... Everybody had to have their own parent. They couldn't take one parent for the whole gaggle of us. And <laughs> these rules, it's ridiculous. You see, you got to grow up in California. They did not care. Just give us the money and we'll give you the ticket. I remember the mall was a stickler. Yeah, but in Florida, here's the irony. In Florida, they didn't give a shit. I just didn't know that yet. I saw every R-rated movie alone in theaters in Florida. I could have just gone with my friends and bought a ticket, but they were saying they were all taking a parent. I asked my parents to go, and they're like, fuck no, I'm not going to take you to an R-rated movie with a bunch of your friends. I don't want to do that. So I sat home, and the next day, they were all telling me how awesome this movie was, and about how there's an old lady going, Ben Richards is a mean motherfucker! And I'm like, oh my god, did I miss this? <laughs> so the day it was out on video, I rented it just so I could experience this great movie they had talked about for a year. Yeah, I saw it on video, too. You know, I had a strange relationship with Arnold in the sense that I did never liked him. I, and I still don't like him. I think he's a terrible actor. And a worse governor. Uh, you know, we were going to talk about his politics in this movie. We're going to talk a lot about his personal life because you can't not watching some scenes in this movie. But I do feel like he always did well with sci-fi. Like, the ones that weren't sci-fi, I could never get through. Commando, no way. Red Heat, no way. <laughs> Twins, Kindergarten Cop, absolutely not. 
But Terminator, Predator, Running Man, Total Recall, those ones, I always felt like they had some smarts to them. And the smarts didn't come from Arnold. They usually came from the people behind the camera. But I remember liking this movie. Maybe I credit it to King or just the idea that there's some pseudo-Vorhovian comedy here. It is definitely not Paul Vorhoven, but it has a similar... It's Vorhoven light. Yeah, exactly. There is sort of a, the same qualities that made Detroit's RoboCop world so irreverent. A little bit of that is true here in this future Los Angeles. Or I should say Los Angeles 2017. It's actually predicting <laughs> next year. <laughs> One year away. Yes. I'm blaming this year's presidential election on the economic collapse and the police state that they're discussing. I'm not ruling this out as being one year from now, in fact. <laughs> I, I do love, you know, I didn't appreciate then, though I did was a fan of the family feud as a kid. But Richard Dawson, like, I became a huge fan of later in life, thanks to the Game Show Network reruns of Family Feud. Like, I don't even know if they gave that guy a script. I, I, I'm willing to bet he just ad-libbed all this but like for me now like Richard Dawson's as much of a draw as Arnold was when I was a kid and we should probably tell our younger viewers now this feels <laughs> very much in the time but this is coming out when game shows were exactly yeah like press your luck Joker's wild family feud there was no reality TV there was no survivor no survivor yeah there was no American gladiators all of that kind of came from this. I actually do think that this was the germ that was planted that would morph into Japanese game shows and the idea of an extreme challenge. I think that that was a relatively, unless you're counting Circus of the Stars and Laugh Olympics. Battle of the Network Stars. Yeah, I just don't feel like we really had anything like this other than the Olympics. And if this movie is groundbreaking, it's groundbreaking in that way. And if you talk to director Rob Cohen, who didn't direct this film, he actually produced this film, but he directed the first Fast and the Furious film and Dragon the Bruce Lee story. He's the one who got financing for this film. He says American Gladiators ripped them off. They wanted to do Running Man the TV show and American Gladiators did it first. I believe that. There's too much similarity. Although, to be fair, wrestling is on TV. I mean, there was some of these larger-than-life characters. Hell, some of these people in it are wrestlers. That was kind of maybe a source of inspiration. I definitely think some of the drive-in movies like Rollerball and Death Race 2000 from the 70s probably inspired King and this movie as well. But he had already done this. Bachman had already had Long Walk, which is about kids that walk themselves into collapsing. He had already had this sort of extreme notion. I felt like this was even a repeat for King by the time he was writing this story. I feel like he has two Bachman stories and he repeats them both. One is the crazy gunman in Rage and Road Work. And one is the fatal game show in The Long Walk and The Running Man. You know, I feel like those two, Long Walk and Running Man, could take place in the same universe. They could both be on competing channels. <laughs> Which one do you want to watch tonight, honey? I agree. Yeah, you're right. It could be rival shows. Does Alex Trebek do the Long Walk? <laughs> it was actually, though, the long walk, they played like the Olympics, whereas they did play this one like Family Feud or something like that. It was three hours a night. I guess it's very Survivor or something like that to go with today's reality TV metaphors. And yes, all of these people who made the film, Rob Cohen, the producer, 
the director, Paul Michael Glazer, they just sat there breaking their arms, patting themselves on the back during the two commentaries and the bonus features about how they predicted this and it's all coming true and we're not that far away from actually having the running man and our they're both extraordinarily liberal and they cop to it and they consider the Patriot Act the beginning of the end that will lead us to the police state that the running man exists in. Well, I think they're right about something. I mean, I do feel like this was the first time I ever contemplated on television a show like this existing. And now, of course, we've had Battle Royale and Hunger Games and all of that. Uh, You know, you can duke it out about who ripped off who there, but the truth is they both ripped off Running Man. Yeah. And The Long Walk, yeah, both of those. And the strangest freaking thing. I have, like, the first release of this on Blu-ray. I bought it because I love the movie. I'm not needing to keep that secret. I am the (laughs) King fan here. And I never watched the bonus features, though. My God, the bonus features are weird. One is all about living in a surveillance state after the Patriot Act that has nothing to do with the running man. (laughs) And the other is about the debasement of television and and interviews with survivor contestants and things. And it slightly ties back to the running man. But this is both the director and producer. Like, we're going to get our political statements out there. I can't believe I sat through a 20-minute conspiracy theory it felt like i was watching an oliver stone docudrama but trying to figure out how this pertains to our review well that's how it pertains is i'm gonna go what the fuck was that bonus feature (laughs) it got you to buy it and that's all that it had to do (laughs) also worth pointing out the screenwriter here steven d'souza we talked about him a couple weeks ago he wrote that tv pilot for the spirit the year after running man would come out he would have his greatest success with die hard Yes, he had worked with Arnold before on Commando. Very recently, I think with The Spirit, you had talked about Arnold and his one-liners, and you said with The Spirit, D'Souza wasn't giving The Spirit the one-liners that Arnold had. According to Glazer here, D'Souza was actually rewriting daily to come up with one-liners for Arnold to say, because Arnold said, I need a line. And so he'd come up with the jokes. That is the one thing I do remember, because I haven't seen this since I saw it in theaters in 87. I remember there's a dude with, like, Christmas lights all over him, and Arnold says, yo, Christmas tree, or something like that. Like, that is the one thing I remember, is a one-liner. He doesn't say, yo, that's Stallone. Yeah, Stallone said that. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, Christmas tree. Hey, Christmas tree, then. (laughs) How did they get Arnold? Is there any discussion as to why they went with him? Because if you read that novel, there's no Arnold in Ben Richards. Yeah, reading the book, I pictured like a young Lee Marvin type of thing. Kind of a scrappy, cynical guy. Not Arnold at all in the book. And in fact, they did talk about Patrick Swayze being the lead. They Hmm. talked about Christopher Reeve being the lead. (laughs) Hmm. That would be darkly ironic. I think that's what you want. You want an average guy. You And if you're going to sell this as a suspense piece, you want to believe that this is a person that's overwhelmed. When you cast Arnold, it, it instantly becomes something else. You no longer fear for the running man. You just wait for the one-liners, indeed. Well, if you listen to Rob Cohen's commentary, I won't recap everything, but... The fact is, he was making this film, but selling all the rights so the studios would make the profit, and he was just going to make the budget for the film, and anything they didn't spend was his profit. He had no ownership of this film when it was made, and he wasn't getting any funding until Arnold was on board. And then once Arnold agreed, and he was there, then Cohen went to Cannes, and... 
got a whole bunch of money. He raised $18 million and it was only a $16 million budget. So it was Arnold who got this movie made. And I don't think of Arnold as a huge fucking name at this time. Keep in mind, this was being made before Predator even was out. But Arnold came on with a whole bunch of demands. First of all, this movie was supposed to be summer of 87. Arnold had the power to tell them to delay it so it didn't compete with Predator and came out much later in the year than they wanted it to. They saw this as a summer film. And Arnold had complete script approval. Every time they changed a line, they had to take it to Arnold and Arnold had to say yes or no. These lines, okay. (laughs) These aren't his best quotes. We'll get into it as we get into the movie, but I feel like they could have probably kept coming up with some lines here. I'll I'll say that Arnold was a draw. Like, as a kid, I knew who Arnold was. The Conan movies, Pumping Iron. But yeah, you're right. He wasn't the megastar. I don't see him as having the power to approve the script and write lines at this point in his career. This was no kindergarten cop, Arnold. Yeah, apparently he'd been just building that year over year, and he was already super rich even before he ever starred in films because of his bodybuilding days. And yeah, he had complete approval. He was basically one of the producers. Everybody had to get his sign off before they could do much. So that kind of puts his career in a new light for me. So how did they get Starsky? (laughs) The, The man that's credited with being the director is the actor in one half of Starsky and Hutch. Yeah, he is. He's also done some directing. Some TV movies, yes. Well, yeah, and he actually got the job because of an episode of Miami Vice he did. But, I mean, he's directed that skating movie, The Cutting Edge. and The ice skating movie. You mean. Yes. This was a warm-up here, I guess, with Sub-Zero then. <laughs> and do you remember that Kevin Bacon movie, The Air Up There? I do. He directed that, too. Oh, did he do that one? (laughs) The racism up there. Yes, I remember that. Okay, so this is his best movie. (laughs) We need a basketball player. All right, I'll go to Africa. (laughs) But he was actually a very last-minute replacement. The fifth director, not attached to this, but actually working on this film. The first, George P. Cosmatos... He did Rambo First Blood Part 2, and they thought he'd be perfect for The Running Man. He just wouldn't do the film Cohen wanted, though. Cohen had a script, because Matos decided he was going to go off and write his own script, so Cohen had to fire him. Yeah, he wanted to put it all in a mall. Yes, the whole thing in a shopping mall. <laughs> That's kind of fun, but mm, a little weird. Next up, they brought in Carl Schenkel, director of Tarzan and the Lost City and Night Moves. Night Moves from the 70s? Night Moves from 1992. The K-N-I-G-H-T, Christopher Lambert film. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah, he he decided he didn't want to do such a large project. Then, based upon a film I've not heard of, Savage Islands, they hired Ferdinand Fairfax, a director whose name doesn't ring any bells for me either. Ferdinand Fairfax sounds like the name of like some <laughs> creature on a Saturday morning cartoon. All right. And looking up what he's done, and I haven't heard of any of these movies. Jeeves and Wooster? <laughs> oh, well, Jeeves and Wooster are famous characters from uh, Woodhouse books. But okay. so he's British. He's got to be with a name like that. Yeah, he <laughs> sounds like he's from Wind of the Willows. Okay, go back to England. It ain't here for you. 
Yeah, he he actually then again started to rewrite and came in and said, I have a treatment. So he was fired. Yeah, everyone wanted to rewrite this script from what I read. Like, no one wanted to do what they were actually given. But then they actually got one who started shooting. Andrew Davis, who got hired because of Code of Silence. He'd later go on to do Above the Law and The Fugitive and Under Siege. Yeah, The Fugitive, obviously a big one for him. I think he might have even got an Oscar nomination for that, but peaked right after that movie. Yeah, he would be the biggest name you're mentioning here. In one week, he ballooned this project $8 million. (laughs) It was like a line from Tropic Thunder. Three days into shooting, they're seven weeks behind schedule. (laughs) Yeah, and so he was fired, and they already had sets built at this point. The script was finalized. They were already shooting, and apparently, according to his commentary, Cohen knew things weren't going to work out with Davis, and Glazer had another project lined up, and Cohen was like, don't, telling his agent, don't let him take that other project. Just hold on, hold on. And then finally Davis was officially fired, and <laughs> Glazer was told, you have three days downtime, and then we're going to start shooting again. That's all we can afford. So he had three days prep, came in, and shot it. And apparently, according to IMDb trivia, Schwarzenegger blames this movie's failures on this TV director, not understanding the mythology and the sci-fi and you know (laughs) was this movie a box office failure no i think it was a modest hit maybe it wasn't all that it could have been it was no predator it's not what arnold wanted it to be then my god but not not meeting his standard Ooh, that's gonna hurt it sounds like with that kind of production history you bring in a tv guy like you know tv is just down and dirty you got deadlines you gotta make so yeah that's the way to go at this point yeah i mean exactly you got somebody who's used to coming in and having seven days to shoot an hour and this film made almost 40 million on a budget of 27 but it was critically drubbed it won negative awards it was called the most violent film of 1987 it was i mean keep in mind the mpaa was super super conservative at this time they had to cut a couple head explosions but they were able to keep one in here and it was just deemed ultra violent (laughs) garbage and after a couple weeks the arnold fans didn't like its humor they wanted arnold to be more serious action star and so this took a while to really find its following yeah i feel like it's second string arnold i feel like it's you wouldn't put it in the same category as terminator certainly or total recall predator but it probably played about as well as commando Yeah, but it was several years after Commando as well. It should have been much bigger than Commando, and especially coming out in the shadow of Predator, I think expectations might have been a little bit higher. That was your first mistake. Don't expect too much from Arnold. I'm not going to. Arnie, give him the plot, and we'll get into it. It's the year 2017, and America is in financial ruin and run by a paramilitary police state. To keep the people pacified, extreme game shows flood the TV stations. These are run by the monolithic entity called The Network, and its top-rated show is The Running Man, hosted by Damon Killian, played by Richard Dawson, enjoying the more smarmy parts of a game show MC. On The Running Man, convicted criminals have the chance to reduce their sentence or even get a complete pardon if they can make their way through four zones, all the while being hunted by stalkers. WWE-type assassins, each with their own gimmicks and costumes. Our story focuses on Ben Richards, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
Richards was a pilot for the government, but when he refused to open fire on unarmed people at a hunger protest, he was framed for their massacre. With the help of William Laughlin, played by Yafet Kodo, and nerdy Harold Weiss, Richards escapes prison and meets up with the Resistance, an underground movement set on exposing the network for all its lies. Richards wants no part of it, choosing to flee the country, using for cover a comely hostage, Amber Mendez, played by Maria Conchetta Alonso. But Amber yells for help and Richards is captured and, along with Laughlin and Harold, made the next Running Man contestants. But Killian and the network didn't count on Richard's stamina and killer instinct as he takes down stalker after stalker and becomes an unlikely audience hero. More, in the middle of the arena is the satellite uplink for the entire network. Harold is able to figure out the decryption codes for the uplink before he's killed. Laughlin is also killed. But Richard, joined by Amber, who was thrown in the arena, are able to escape and join the resistance. Though the network used... Andy circus like technology to convince the world Richards was dead, he actually leads an army of resistance members to storm the network and broadcast the truth. And Richards takes great delight in sending Killian down into the pit and to his own fiery death as credits roll. So, right off the bat, with that plot summary, you guys said this is an Arnold movie, no King movie. I agree. This is the probably, I'd rank it number two in all of King's direct adaptations as having so little to do with the source material. Number one is the lawnmower man as being completely dissociated from the original book. And this, this is number two. This is very, very unlike that book where Ben Richards, he's running through society up and down the coast of New England, trying to hide from stalkers and ordinary people are given rewards if they out him. And he does meet up with a few people who are a scattered resistance, but there's no arena there is none of this Laughlin, Harold, Hack the Network kind of plot. It's a far more suspense novel. Yeah, it's a man on the run. It's a Hitchcock movie that they're calling a game show. I don't know how it would even be broadcast the way that they're talking. They made him deliver two tapes a day. And it's fun to read that book because looking at the technology of 2017, they actually make him mail tapes. I'm like, oh, they could just do a Wi-Fi link, or, you know, give him a cell phone and make him do selfies. <laughs> Internet, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he has to give tapes that they air. And, you know, they did use some tricks. I think King was very future thinking because they re-edit, like they do in this movie, they re-edit tapes of Richards and they dub other people saying lines that sound like him. So he says negative things or it sounds like he's doing it. So King did predict basically real reality TV where they're going to take what you say out of context to make you look evil. Yeah, and they start with it right here. We get to the chopper. <laughs> ben is flying over Bakersfield. You know what? If they bomb Bakersfield today, I'm not sure anyone would notice. Okay, so you get Bakersfield, Stuart. I wasn't sure because you're not a California <laughs> native, but there's not this many people. Maybe today there's this many people in Bakersfield, but come on. Like, why would there be mass rights in Bakersfield? That is so weird. That's how bad things have gotten. Bakersfield <laughs> is looking good. That's actually the point is, yes, this book is written by King or Bachman. Of course, some of it takes place in Maine and Boston and all of that. But Cohen felt that in the 80s and looking to 2017, if you're making a show about an evil game show, you make that in California. And so they've upped the population in California. They've upped the strife in California. And yeah, Bakersfield is now the 
home where people are starving to death and form a protest and a riot, and Arnold is in some unspecified pilot role for the government. He's the Finn of this movie. You know, Finn from The Force Awakens is a stormtrooper who doesn't want to kill innocent people. Yeah, he's a Ben Richards. Arnold is a cop. But when he's told to fire on these people that are innocent, they just want food, he refuses to do it for reasons never explained. He's just well, a good guy at this I, moment. I mean, I don't I didn't need to explain my reasons for not shooting innocent people, do I, Jacob? I know you lived in Texas for a while, but shit. <laughs> well, this was a big debate during The Force Awakens. Why did Finn not do that? Right here, we're getting it with Arnold. Yeah, we're told later that people are brainwashed by television, and so that we're led to believe on some level, you know, Arnold wouldn't have a will of his own, that everyone is sort of just duped into doing whatever they're told. But Arnold is a hero. We know this. He's always cast in that way, with the exception of Terminator. That's how he wants to be perceived. And so, yes, he will not do the callous act, and so he gets knocked out, and the guys do it anyway, and he takes the fall. Who would take the fall if he had done it? That is a very good question. Maybe they had somebody already in the running band they were going to blame or just cover it up and not cover the event. Yeah, I think they would have just covered it up. It's because now they have a cop that went against them. They want to make him look really bad. And they actually had a point of setting him up as a pilot. In the original novel, spoiler alert, it ends with him crashing a airplane into a New York skyscraper. Yep. Where the mm. network is. Ah, Steven, first rage and then this. Maybe take them all out of print. Hey, if you write about dark things, eventually the real world is going to be inspired by it. I'm not saying the terrorist read The Running Man, but... I don't think the Taliban had this in their lending library. I'm pretty sure they didn't, but my point is, eventually, yeah, you're put in that uncomfortable spot when reality mirrors fiction and... I think you shouldn't read that book because it's not very good, but it may also upset people who sees that being done by the hero character. They might not be able to see the inspiration of his final sacrifice. Well, that was actually intended to be the ending of this film. This final director, Glazer, when he came in, is like, no, I really think we need a happy ending where... Ben Richards lives and gets the girl, not a sad ending where he's going to pilot something into the network skyscraper. So Cohen agreed only along the lines of if test audiences like this cheesy, happy ending, they'll go with it. Test audiences loved it. So they never had to go back and refilm Arnold's dying in a fiery crash. Yeah, I can't even imagine them trying to emulate what the book did. It's so tonally different. They had ideas. Listening to them talk, they thought they were adapting King's book. Listening to King talk, he's like, this has nothing to do with my book. Yeah. I feel like you would say that about any movie based on his stuff, though. (laughs) Except for that Shining TV series. (laughs) Yes. Perfect. At any rate, uh, they throw Arnold in jail wrongly, and he has to bust himself out 18 months later. He gets some biceps doing construction work. I think that's also the lie they told in Total Recall. Yeah, he was a construction worker there. Yeah. Here he's carrying steel beams around. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, he does the fake fighting with Yafet Kodo, while the smart guy, we know he's smart, he's got glasses and he likes computers, <laughs> he does all the work and hacks the system. Yeah, but he's really bad at stealing a code, because he just stares at that computer, like, he doesn't even, like, use, like, real, like, James Bond spy techniques, just like, I'm just gonna stare at you, put that code in. <laughs> Cover your pin numbers, guys. 
I forgot they. This is where the killer collars come from from Battle Royale. That they they go off if you walk past a zone that you're not supposed to leave. It's like having a, a house arrest ankle bracelet or something. But this time it's going to make your head blow. Yeah, I'd forgotten that was from this film too. I haven't seen this film in quite a while, and when. I saw the Phantom Menace. I'm like, they took this idea of chips in your head that blow your skull apart from another movie. Yeah, they took it from Running Man. Definitely. But it does give us a chance to see Arnold running and gunning right off the bat, which is what he was known for doing in films like Commando and Terminator. He gets a big machine gun. Yafet Kodo, I don't know what this man is doing here. I mean, he was a respected actor in his early days, and he did the James Bond stuff. Here, he's like tackling people and snapping their necks i'm like damn i i never thought of him as a badass yeah he's a big guy he's a big guy but maybe not in the same way that jim brown is who will be showing up later yes. with a flamethrower <laughs> but yeah at any rate he doesn't have to make it through the entire film we want girly man to be around arnold it only makes him look more tough yeah, that's why we got Chico to try to run through this barrier before it's deactivated to get his head blown off. Fun effect. I, I, Arnie, you said they had to cut more of this because of the MPAA. That's too bad. I always like a good head explosion. Yeah, I mean, this makes scanners look rudimentary the way that head pops. Yeah, they needed Vorhoven here. I mean, wh I remembered it being as sarcastic and clever as the Vorhoven worlds in Robocop and Total Recall, and it is not. It most definitely is not. But in little moments like this head pop, you do see where Vorhoven would take that and excel. It really is a shame they didn't delay this movie a year. I know that he knew Vorhoven. I know that he was considered to play the original Robocop. It's too bad with all these directors coming in and out of this project that they didn't just wait for Vorhoven to finish Robocop because he would have killed in this movie. Yeah, Robocop came out the same year, but you keep mentioning Verhoeven. You know what kind of feel I got off of this is a very Philip K. Dickian, dystopic future Blade Runner. I mean, in those early scenes where we see Ben flying the chopper over the city and in some later scenes after this escape, it really feels like they're trying to do a very low-budget Ridley Scott. Well, the, the art director is. I don't think the director's whoever they may be, we'll call him Glazer, but uh, <laughs> I don't think any of the people creatively are trying to create Blade Runner, which was a flop. I mean, there would be no reason to want to, but the art director saw Blade Runner and was like, yeah, we need to do that, but I only got a dollar ninety nine, so here it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When Ben escapes and we cut to L.A., we got, what, some matte paintings to make it look more futuristic. <laughs> it, there are not huge LCD TVs. There's one screen, like, playing a game show on it. There's also Chinese lanterns around, and yes. that's the only thing. I mean, if you didn't see Blade Runner, you would not put Chinese lanterns in future L.A. Correct. And then when they meet the Resistance, this blew my mind. I had no idea, first of all, that Mick Fleetwood would ever act in a movie. <laughs> but here he is, the mastermind behind Fleetwood Mac. He even says a line. They made him stop playing his music. I think this is supposed to be. His character's name is Mick. I think this is Mick Fleetwood playing himself as a futuristic <laughs> prophet. He is. And did you notice it's Dweezil Zappa playing Mick's sidekick, Stevie, like Nick's? 
Yeah, it's a very musical revolution here. <laughs> I can't believe it. But yeah, we got a Zappa and Mick Fleetwood to save the day. Who needs Arnold in this world? I'd much rather see these guys crash the running man and, you know, I don't know, play a concert or something. <laughs> But they take off the collar, and, and Arnold's presented with a choice. You know, you can join the revolution, topple the government. No, I don't care anything about politics. <laughs> if only that were true, Arnold. 20 years later, you're going to be running L.A., but here he's walking away. Well, it was a different time. He was a younger man, and yeah, it, it's kind of a strange twist in this movie. I think that they really have a circuitous first act to get him in the running man game. I like it though, because it's world building. We're really getting to see this futuristic world. Whereas if he went straight from being what they call the butcher of Bakersfield to the running man, we wouldn't have this opportunity to visit the land outside. And yes, when he's trying to kidnap a girl and then hop a plane in a futuristic kind of TSA agent, you can't help but make unfavorable comparisons to the following year's Total Recall. That wasn't what I was thinking about. When he's throwing the maid onto the bed, I mean, Maria Conchita Alonso had up to this point only been playing maid characters. Oh, I see where you're going. I couldn't help but think about a page from his personal life. I'm like, is this how it went down? <laughs> you didn't say please. It was a Hispanic housekeeper at that, wasn't it? Yes. I just hope that they have kids. The kids don't go into acting because you're not going to understand a word they're saying with these parents. Oh, I know. Yeah. Between the two of them, I turned on the subtitles. I'm like, I know this is in English, but I cannot understand what is being said. That was actually their intent. The reason why they cast Alonzo is because they thought it would be hysterical to have his German accent against their Spanish accent. And when they argue, neither one would know what the other is saying. Mm. That might have been one of the reasons. I also think Arnold has a type and she's it. I do have to ask, does Arnold work out at the World Gym? I think he's Gold's Gym. Yeah, Gold's Gym is who made him. Okay, I wasn't sure because at one of these escape scenes, he's wearing a World's Gym shirt. And I didn't know if he was subtly promoting the place that made him big. I was surprised that it was World's Gym. They must have paid a lot of money for him to put that on because... Yeah, Wielder is the guy that made him. I guess Wielder did, yes. I guess it is the guy that made it, went off and did that. So yes, in a weird way, he was promoting the people that had promoted him. And speaking of working out, this is also during these scenes, we get our first look at another governor. Yes, <laughs> straight out of Predator, <laughs> we've got Jesse Ventura in this. Yeah, and this is where I'm getting that Vorhoven vibe. Every once in a while, we'll cut to a different game show or hear what he leads an aerobic workout television show at this point. He doesn't do a lot of the working out. He's got the girls doing that, but he's telling you what exercises to do. And you can't undersell how big aerobics was in the 80s with Jane Fonda. Oh, yeah. and everyone had their exercise tape. I mean, I don't care if you were fit or not. You put out an exercise tape and yes, this is just perfect 80s satire. It's on the nose. It's obvious. I mean, as a kid, I was laughing because, you know, I understood what was going on here. It's not particularly sophisticated, but it is very much satirizing pop culture of the 1987 universe that I lived in. And so I appreciated all these details. Again, this is what made me think it was very much like Total Recall. 
Although, on the other hand here, this stuff is slowing down the action. We could be getting into the arena much faster. I know that when we reviewed the Hunger Games series, you guys were very critical about those movies taking an hour before you get to the arena. This takes nearly as long. It's about 42 minutes before we're running with anybody trying to kill him. Yeah, but you know what? It's intercut with Richard Dawson. Like, we get why he wants the Butcher of Bakersfield on the show. Ratings, they haven't gone down, but they've leveled off. And this is the biggest show on television. And look, Richard Dawson is just fun to watch. Like, this guy, yeah, smarmy. Look, my dad, a couple of his sisters, some in-laws were on the Family Feud during the Richard Dawson era. And my aunts got kissed. They said he reeked of cigarette smoke. It was not pleasant. But, like, that is why I love Richard Dawson. He just... He has that swagger. Richard Dawson is the best thing about this movie. He's absolutely great in this part. It's so weird because he was a game show host at the time. Yeah, he'd come back to the family feud to rescue it from ratings failure. He's also doing a very clever satire of a very well-known Hollywood game show personality, Merv Griffin whose Mm -hmm. sexuality was always under questioning, who always had these young, handsome boys always around him, and who said things like cutie pie and what have you, and was just sort of known for creating some of the most iconic game shows. He's definitely riffing on his old boss here. And yet, what's funny is, according to people who worked on The Family Feud, the real Richard Dawson is a lot like Damon Killian in this film as far as how he treated underlings. Oh, no, you did a good job. If he's here again tomorrow, you're not. He apparently ruled the feud with an iron fist. (laughs) And yes, we're going to call him Richard Dawson this whole podcast. I know it. But he isn't playing himself. He could have. You could have just made him Richard Dawson in 2017. But he's playing Damon Killian who's not just the host of the show, but seems to also be its creator, executive producer, everything. He's doing the casting, he's doing the plotting, and he's out there working the crowd. And you're right, Stuart, when you said he's the best part of this film, they actually had to cut a ton of his scenes because test audiences wanted him to defeat Arnold. They liked him so much more than Arnold (laughs) that when Arnold kills him at the end, they were really upset. So they had to cut him back and leave only the evilest parts. I'm with them. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to see him acting, to satirize his own thing, to satirize Merv Griffin, game shows. All of this stuff is really where the movie is at its stride. You know, that the, there's a copy of the home game to give away to contestants. All of this stuff is the fun part. I love that. How would you play this in a home game? <laughs> I can only imagine. It's got to have a real D&D feel. (laughs) (laughs) That's the fun part of this movie. That is what helps this movie in what is otherwise... Yeah, it is a a long time before we get into the actual chase. There is a lot of setup going on here. And I think you're right, Jacob. The reason why we accept it and aren't bored is because Dawson is always there glowering with a line. Arnold is... I don't know. I don't think his lines are very good here, and I never think he's very good. I don't think he's doing a whole lot for this movie. No, he, he when he goes to the airport, and he, you know, you're supposed to have these special security badges to travel, and we only have one for Amber, and he's doing this. Oh, oh, woman, everything in this post. Let's, you know, it, it, it's not funny. It's it's not entertaining. It, it's it seems like an early Arnold gag. Yeah, it's 
something that I'd think of him doing a lot more just a few months later in Twins, though. It's almost that kind of humor where he's just playing so stupid. I don't know why he feels he needs a hostage. I mean, he goes to his the apartment of his brother and he just hangs out there. The security code is still the same. Like, new tenant, change <laughs> the security code. Yeah, not very secure. This is all a bit from Commando, right? I remember him putting on a tacky Hawaiian shirt and getting on a plane with a heavy and like killing him and then climbing out of the cargo thing of the plane or something like that. I feel like so yes. often in this movie, Arnold is just doing things he did in other movies. Like, the way he was carrying those steel bars was like when he was carrying the tree trunks and, you know, I'll be back. I mean, he's just doing him. That's what Arnold is doing. But ever since Terminator, he said, I'll be back in every movie. That was his thing you know that wasn't a terminator line that was an arnold line he'd say it and he'd say it all the time you couldn't stop him from saying it i don't think he had said it between any movie and terminator in this one well he said it in commando and raw deal yeah i'll take your word i'm never watching raw deal yeah, I never caught that this was a repeated thing with him. For reasons I cannot explain, people love to watch Arnold <laughs> do these bits again and again. Yeah, he says it in Twins, he says it in Total Recall, Kindergarten Cop. Well, I know he does it later, but I mean, there has been precisely what? Uh, Commando, Raw Deal, and Predator in between. And I know he didn't say it in Predator. No, he did not say it in Predator, but that's the only one he didn't. <laughs> Okay, I never made it through Commando. I would never watch Raw Deal. <laughs> so yeah, that was just his thing. He kept trying to replay that Terminator success to make it his own personal tagline. And yeah, even though he may have done this stuff before, I'm enjoying him in Hawaiian shirts, even though he it's a little uncomfortable to see his giant hand wrapped around Alonzo's tiny neck. And you're like, he could snap that so quick. And really, he may not be the butcher of Bakersfield, but the way he's treating this hostage is like he is a criminal at this point. He took Amber hostage and threatened her life and tied her up. And later on, they'll be like, what if he raped you and killed you? Or killed you and raped you. He could have, and it's kind of coming across that way. He is not feeling heroic at this moment. It's certainly not helping with his public persona, too, with women. I mean, yeah, this, this stuff makes me cringe, actually. it's I don't even find it funny because I'm just like, yeah, he does have this reputation in real life, but okay, I guess if you laugh it off, no one will... We'll take it, those charges seriously. It worked for a few decades until he ran for governor. <laughs> yeah, when you get in politics, the gloves definitely come off. He should have stuck with his line, not into politics, into survival. <laughs> well, he figured it out. He got out. They didn't change the laws to let him run for president. Oh, boy, but man, did they think about it. But yes, he does get arrested and gets a court-appointed theatrical agent. Perhaps my Probably favorite, my favorite joke. Yes, mine yeah, too. <laughs> my, my favorite gag in this movie. Yeah, I agree. There is something fun about this universe. The idea that the, the world of TV, which obviously the screenwriter Stephen D'Souza knew very well, that it was part of this sinister government, that this is basically 1984 as run by a television network, seems kind of perversely perfect. I mean, this was back in the age, too, when there was only three networks, really, and Fox, but that was barely anything. And they did. They had all the ratings, all the money behind them. They had real control. 
nowadays, I mean, you're lucky to get a, a tiny share for anything on a major network. But back then, they held much more sway with advertising. Yeah, it's funny that it actually went the reverse. Here they were picturing one network to rule them all. And because there were only three that mattered, that seemed possible. And now... Man, the networks are, like, struggling to keep up with HBO and Netflix in ratings. (laughs) Exactly. Competing with the internet and YouTube, kitten videos are getting more hits (laughs) than major TV shows with major stars. And it's when we get to this point, we realize this is when they're doctoring video. Like, they show, they replay that opening scene. I guess there are cameras on drones floating outside the helicopter videotaping it all. With multiple camera angles at that. Yeah, with multiple camera angles to get these exact same shots that we saw. But they've doctored the video and cut it so it looks like he didn't obey orders and murdered the people. Right. And this is what sets off Amber. That Amber, strangely, is allowed to go back to her job, which is coincidentally at the network. I guess if they rule everything, then you end up working for the network. But she's a jingle writer. She's home hammering out a new tune or something and is watching TV at the same time. I wouldn't think that would work, but whatever. Can you turn off the TV in this world? I honestly would think they're just stuck to on. (laughs) Yeah, you could be right. But at any rate, she sees the report, knows that's not the way it happened, and is going to do something about it. She's actually going to go dig up the real take. Yeah, they say Richards murdered people at the airport, and she was there. She knows he didn't snap any necks of security guards. Yeah, and I think this is her character arc of, while Ben Richards goes from I'm not into politics to leading a revolution, she goes from complete corporate drone, believing everything her company and the government says— This is where she starts to realize she is actually working for an evil company. She doesn't know. It's not like she's complicit. She's literally just believing the lies. Right. And, you know, that's usually the Brave New World experience. It takes a John the Savage to to show the people what they're living in and lead them to freedom. Uh, That said, even though he's starting the path of a revolution above ground, unwittingly, I never get that there is a real sexual chemistry between these two. And indeed, with it starting up with him tying her up and yeah, his hands around her neck, I don't want it to go there. I mean, that would just be Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) Well, she isn't the captive for long. If it happened while he, she was his prisoner, maybe. But the way it happens, I'll kind of go with it, you know? Especially a couple of people in an extreme circumstance like this thrust together into an extreme circumstance. Yeah, I could I could see it. Uh, I guess. I, I feel they do it because in movies, if there's a guy and a girl, we're going to make them a couple. There has to be that angle to it. Even if there's nothing romantic about the scenario, we must insert romance. We're checking off boxes here. But truly, we're here for the action, right? If you're hiring Arnold, you don't want to see him making out with a girl. You want to see him taking down people and saying one-liners. And, you know, after 42 minutes... You keep saying 42 minutes, but it's actually right at the 30-minute mark that the game show starts. Yes, there's the preamble. There's the introducing of the contestants. But the game show, the running man, is at 30 minutes. There's the solid gold dancers. Did they invent the running man? Did, did they ever do that move or did someone else make up the running man? Those aren't the solid gold dancers, Jacob. Those are the Laker girls. And this entire thing is being choreographed by Laker girl Paula, Paula Abdul. <laughs> yeah, just a, what, about a year before straight up, I think. 
Yep, and a year before also coming to America, and seeing all three of those things in a row makes me think she really only knows one set of dance moves and has them do them. But hey, they were the moves of the time, and I, I think that all this preamble you're talking about, yeah, it's 12 minutes of it, but I do think, again, the satire of the game shows of that era is so letter-perfect that there is real enjoyment to it if you have familiarity with those game shows. If you're sitting around waiting for Arnold to kick ass you might be a little bit more impatient. Yeah, I I really, though, enjoy this because Dawson is so great to see him introduce the show. I wouldn't want to just jump to the show in the middle. We get Dawson out there working the crowd, talking to that old lady who's going to come back later with the foul line, and he says he's going to kiss her, but no tongues. It's just really a fun thing to see. I think that, yes, the beginning, I enjoyed exploring the world, but it They don't have the money to make a world that I want to spend time in. So once I know what it looks like on the outside, I want to see this game show. And yeah, they show the doctored footage. I feel like I'm watching the first episode of, insert title here, The Bachelor, American Idol, Survivor. It feels like today's reality TV. Uh, And keep in mind, that stuff originated in Japan. I don't even think those shows were happening in Japan yet. I literally think the Japanese audience saw this movie and said, let's do it. And they actually did, (laughs) like the next year. According to Cohen, there was one of those Japanese shows that sent somebody across the world and things like that. I'll say that I recently saw one Japanese game show where they asked you questions. And if you answered wrong, the contestants had to do things like eat a ghost pepper, which is like horrible. So I, I remember when I was in Japan, I was fascinated by one in which someone snuck into your kitchen and made a meal with whatever was in there, and then you had to eat it. And like sometimes they used <laughs> out-of-date ingredients. It was fascinating. Yeah, the Japanese have taken this idea to the extreme. But yeah. you know, King points out himself, he was really just going back to Roman gladiators here. You know, that's what he was trying to call back to is saying America is going to this point where we would like to see the Christians fight the lions again. Oh, Stephen King. That's right. He's somehow involved in this. Yeah, (laughs) I remember him (laughs) in the Stephen King retrospective. Anyway, back to Arnold. (laughs) Arnold is being stripped out of his thing and is in an Adidas-sponsored jumpsuit. I see the product placement happening here. It it is weird that companies would want to put their names on supposed, like, murderers and vile people. Like, I, I wonder if it was hard to get Adidas to sponsor that suit. Honestly, I don't know if that was a sponsorship. I thought it was parody. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think kind of works as both. And I think there is some humor to the idea that you would have corporate sponsorship going into a yeah, Roman gladiator situation. That someone being fought to the death. They know that Ben is going to die here. They, It's guaranteed you're going to see his corpse cut in half or something. And they want their Adidas local to yes. be the thing you see when the blood spattered all over it. That's yeah, they've, just... they've established only three people have ever beat this game. Yeah. Right. And they're off in Hawaii. And two of them are having three ways somehow. And the third one, I guess he just isn't into it. He's alone. But the other thing here is that spandex outfit they put all these contestants in. I'm like, wow, you know, you. I feel bad for you, Fat Kodo, <laughs> having to wear it. Yes. But <laughs> some wear it better than others. Again, <laughs> you're here to accentuate Arnold. You're not to look good yourself. <laughs> but it turns out all of these costumes were designed by 
like the people doing the Star Trek series and films around this time. And I can see that his outfit is very next generation with the sheen and the spandex and all of that. And honestly, the Christmas tree light suit doesn't look much worse than the first season Borg. You know, those guys looked like they were wearing vacuum cleaners. Yeah, let's talk about the stalkers, because that's where the fun of this movie is going to be. You got three runners. They they promised Ben that they weren't going to bring in his friends, and then at the last minute, ha ha ha, all the guys that led the prison break are going to be shoved into this four-quadrant arena, and they're going to keep meeting killers of the audience request. I like the fact that he goes into the audience to have them pick it out. It feels very Price is Right in that way. <laughs> well, Richard Dawson, it, it's Let's Make a Deal, which Richard Dawson hosted for a while. Oh, you're right. You're right. Let's Make a Deal. Indeed. And so you get to pick whichever one. There's this locker room of guys, and it could be anyone. And the first one to go up is Sub-Zero. From Mortal Kombat? Yes, that's what I was thinking. Again, this came first, but... This one's a hockey-themed stalker. Who is Professor Toro Tanaka? I swore my memory was like these were all WWF wrestlers that were going to appear. Maybe Mr. Fuji, but no, this is someone else. Yeah, he's a stunt guy, a martial artist. I thought he was odd job, but it's not him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, he has that physicality, but I mean, this movie is 20 years beyond Goldfinger. I don't know if you watched this with Marjorie, Arnie, but I know she's a big hockey fan. I'm a hockey fan. It's weird that you'd pick a goalie outfit. Hard to skate in. It's mostly there to block things. It's not the most agile. But you want to protect. I mean, I don't know how much of a chance... I'm presuming that the three people that survived just ran fast. There's nobody that's going to be able to fight these guys. You have no weapons going into this. This guy has a hockey stick that's bladed to, like, cut people with a slice. That I mean, they literally make the implication that you're like sushi when this big Japanese guy comes into the rink. Yeah, I agree. It's the running man. It's not the fighting man. And so when you see him come out... It is very WWF in that way with the entrance and his accoutrement. I mean, remember, my comparative is early WWF before they changed that last letter where you had like the animal who would start to rip apart like the arena with his teeth and Andre the Giant and you had the Iron Sheik. I mean, this kind of personality. And so this Sub-Zero would fit right in there with his big smile and his physicality and yeah, his hockey gear. (laughs) I can't not think about Batman and Robin, right? We all remember Mr. Freeze, (laughs) the tacky colors and all of this. I mean, like, in comparison, it's really, this movie is really not that much different, except it seems to have a better sense of humor. But the tackiness of it, they're pretty similar. I can now, now that I've seen this movie again, I can see what they were thinking when they put Arnold in that Mr. Freeze. (laughs) But the whole reason they wanted Ben Richards or Killian wanted Ben Richards is because their ratings were stagnant and people were still tuning in. They weren't losing ratings, but seeing these stalkers kill person after person so easily was not growing their audience. And so they wanted to try to bring in something new. They brought in Ben Richards because he would be a fighter, because he would put up a challenge. I don't think Killian ever thought he stood a chance because these guys are armed. And there's also... 
some weird ATV and motorcycle gang just roaming around the arena. That's what I was wondering, because they say that they get launched into, like, the ruins of a, the big one, that ruined part of L.A., and they never rebuilt. Uh, like, are these, like, Dennis Leary's group from Demolition Man just hanging out there and, like, hassling whoever comes through the tubes? And or, singing about an or, Oscar Mayer wiener? Possibly. <laughs> yeah, I think Demolition Man took a little bit from this movie. I think this movie has influence. It's not great science fiction. Let's just put it out there. What we're getting here is not thought-provoking in the way that even, like, Planet of the Apes would be. But I do feel like its gaudiness and its go-for-the-jugular did influence a lot of things to come, both on television and in the movies. I mean, literally, they go for the jugular. Arnold gets a piece of barbed wire and lassos it around Sub-Zero's neck and, and slices his throat open. I really like this fight. And this is the moment I realize, even though they brought in Glazer at the last moment and he's a TV guy, he has a visual stop. Maybe it's the DP, but the camera moves, the editing here, because we're going back and forth between Sub-Zero fighting Harold Laughlin and... Benjamin Richards, and he's got this goalie net trap and all this. But whenever Sub-Zero gets a hit in or gets a capture, we're cutting to, like, this camera that's going through this, like, office audience where people are cheering, and we're going to this crowd that's betting. It really gives us a feel of liveliness that we wouldn't just get in the arena, that he cuts away from the action to show us an audience enjoying it, even though we are an audience that should be enjoying it. I really like that. I think there's some good filmmaking here. That's the editor. You're complimenting the choice to step out of the arena to show us other people's responses. That's the editor making those decisions. But I'm also complimenting the camera work in those crowds. It's not a static shot of crowds. The camera's like dollying back and people are like following the camera and walking with it. It's, it's actually some really inventive moves there. Yeah, there are a couple shots that I am impressed with in this film. And all the stuff you're talking about, it helps build this world. You see how big the Running Man game show is as you cut to, the, you know, it, you, you get the what you would think of as the 1% watching it and the office people watching it and these like homeless people are, are betting on the games. Who's, what stalker is going to get selected? How fast is he going to kill the contestant? Like you get a lot of world building very efficiently through these shots. That said... The worst line in the film. Stuart, you've repeatedly already damned Arnold's lines in this. I don't think they're that bad. But one, Sub-Zero, now Plane Zero. Yeah, that's terrible. I don't even understand what that means. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you take that one back and go for something different. You you find a rhyme or less than zero. I don't know. There's got to be well, something Well, that's what sub do. means. It yeah, means, less means less than, than So to be... Plane zero is to actually be higher than sub-zero. Anyway, I don't want to get in these kinds of debates. Arnold is a fool for saying these lines, but... This line, yes. No, all the lines. All the lines are really bad. I, I, I like some of his lines. A Christmas tree! Follow me, light bulb. Yeah, these are really not clever. It's still not as bad as Sub-Zero now, plane zero. That's the only line... I, no, that is the worst line. I, I don't even groan, get it. yeah. Yeah, the next up, what we were already sort of hinted at, is a tag team. The guy couldn't pick which one to send in, so they send in both. Dynamo, the opera singer that manipulates electricity while he actually does arias, 
and Buzzsaw, who is, you know, a, a refugee from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He's, he's a bodybuilder with a chainsaw and dynamo. That was the thing on the spot. They hired this big guy and on the set, somebody told the director, yeah, this guy's an opera singer who just looked the part. And so he's like, can you sing Ride of the Valkyries? And just added that in. <laughs> It just adds so much that he sings opera, and that's his entrance. I do like that. It's his gimmick. Everyone's got a gimmick here, like a professional wrestler did in the 80s. Yeah, but I don't think that was supposed to be his gimmick. I I do love, though, his fiberglass Roman gladiator hat. Is that a hat? Or does he really have a glow-in-the-dark mohawk? No, I think it's a hat. Yeah, it looks plastic. Hmm. At any rate, fun characterizations. I don't think these fights are very good. You're complimenting the cinematography. I think, it, for me, it's the lighting. It's the garishness of the look of the world. What makes it such a rich world for satire and for mocking the 80s, which too often did have entertainment that looked like this, I think it pulls me out of the action. I, I rarely get revved up by these fights. I mean, there's one shot with Buzzsaw... Look, it it's not an amazing shot. I like it for this kind of B movie that that excels with violence, like where you just get that camera following that buzzsaw, it's sticking straight out. I, there's something very Mad Max about it. Yeah, I like that. I find it very funny, and I like it for silly reasons. The dynamos in like this silly dune buggy go kart vehicle. Buzzsaw on a motorcycle is kind of badass, but this opera singer Christmas tree in a dune buggy, it's it's really kind of funny in a Chris Farley sort of way. Now, at this point, though, Amber is in the arena. She was caught stealing the real Ben Richards tape, and so they've decided to claim she's a morally questionable woman and Ben Richards' girlfriend, throw her in some spandex, and down there with Laughlin, Harold, and Richards. It seems like a step beyond. I don't get the sense that women play this game, neither as stalkers nor as contestants. But yeah, by selling her as Ben Richards' girlfriend, they're just sort of making it a Ben Richards show that everyone that he was associated with is going to die tonight. And so I guess people would be okay with it. The crowd's already starting to be a little bit, you know, having Sub-Zero killed, I don't know if that helps or hurts Ben's case. At first, it seems to be all the more reason for vengeance. But once he takes out the chainsaw guy, again, with a not funny joke, but uh, that's all right. Keep it. I mean, okay, Arnie. You have to split. Yeah, not not good. Well, that was par. I'll call those par 80s lines. (laughs) Sub-Zero was subpar. These, yeah, they're not quotable. (laughs) You're not going to say them again. Or is it plain par? (laughs) (laughs) but you know they do have a split up here richards and laughlin split up to be chased by buzzsaw while harold and amber who don't even know each other run off together to hack the network because lucky them the middle of the arena where they're being chased just happens to be the satellite uplink for the whole network and if harold can get there and move some geometric shapes around a screen that make no sense it's a hex angle decode system don't you know all about this arnie being into computers listen if i ran the network i would have a 20 character password that is a combination of uppercase (laughs) lowercase symbols and numbers not just a bunch of bars that can be hacked in five minutes by a nerd in glasses. 
You know, I actually think it's kind of smart to put it here. Where else is it going to be more safe than inside the arena? I mean, if you put it out in the real world, the underground might be able to get to it. You put it here where there's all these stalkers and it's televised. I mean, I think you're better protected. Oddly enough, it it made sense to me. But we're going to later find out the underground is there. No, that doesn't make sense to me, but that's later down the road. Having the transmission protected inside the arena, I will go with. Having the underground also being just a few zones away, I don't get. You know, and again, the thing with putting Amber in here is the first woman, they've got to make it a sexual violence thing. That Dynamo is going to rape her. I wish they hadn't gone there with that. Yeah. He was? I didn't get that. At the end? Are you kidding me? His pants are down. Right, but he was changing. He didn't take them down when she showed up. He, he, She literally caught him with his pants down. I can't believe you didn't notice this. And he does it twice. Later in the TV studio, it's the same thing. I can't find the line, but yeah, it's very uh, rapey. I guess he does say, come to me, my love, but... I, I didn't get it as rapey. I just got it as over the top. He didn't play games like this with Weiss, okay? He's that Weiss. That was the end of it. With her, he is climbing on top of her. He's getting physical. And I think yeah. it's it's the same thing that Arnold did when he came in and she was doing her exercises. I I <laughs> this ugh, I don't know. Again, Arnold is not helping his future political career. I'm just happy that Amber can remember all these numbers, you know. He says them once. I'm like, there's no way I'd remember that in the midst of a life-or-death scenario. Yeah, I'm not sure why you need the numbers. It's the transmission code or something. But anyway, it's the MacGuffin that needs to get to the underground group a few zones away. So if Amber hadn't done it then none of the climax of the movie would have been able to happen. So in that way, she's functional for the plot. And Dynamo, he doesn't die. I mean, he gets back in that dune buggy and he's going after Arnold and... Arnold just flips it, yeah. And he won't kill him because he's helpless. I guess that's what tells us he really is the good guy. And we see the audience react to that, the fact that he won't kill Dynamo here. He's killed Buzzsaw and Buzzsaw's got the kill shot on Laughlin. He, he gave him a good slice up the torso, but Richards will not kill him. Dynamo here. Yeah, I think it's the turning point. What the director says is Dynamo pissed himself and shorted out his own outfit, hence why he has no pants later. Mm. Well, I think that it's the turning point for the audience. Before then, they were like, oh, we've got to kill him because he killed Sub-Zero. we got to kill him because he killed Buzzsaw. But because he showed sympathy, much like he did in the Choppa, and nobody knew, it doesn't match up with the character they've been told. They were told this is the butcher of Bakersfield, he's the most malicious man, he has no morals at all, to show that he has some compassion for someone in a vehicle flip. That's when I start noticing the audience coming to his defense. And at some point, off air... We even have Killian saying to him, hey, we'll make you a deal. If you want to become a stalker, we'll set you up with a beach house and we'll pay you well. And I wonder how they're going to spin that to the audience. Like, here's the Butcher Bakersfield. We're trying to kill him. Now he's going to be one of our star stalkers. Well, they'd make him win, right? I mean, yeah. you'd, you'd have him win and then he could say that and you could do it. The blood sport, by being good at blood sport, people will forgive a lot of your unethical qualities i think yeah and 
they were already rooting for him. You know, Butcher or Bakersfield or not, once this happened, they start betting on him. And that old lady comes up and she has to pick who's going to make the next kill. And she picks him. And Killian's like, wait, you have to pick a stalker. He's like, I can pick whoever I want. And so they're already getting behind him. And this is a twist out of the book. In the book, they wanted to make him a hunter, but they were going to fake his execution and then behind the scenes he'd be able to work because they weren't televising the hunters as much in the book version so it is a twist out of the book and it goes very differently as in the book he says yes then crashes his plane here arnold says i'm gonna shove that contract down your throat and i hope you left enough room for my fist it's like that what you're babbling now (laughs) he's been babbling the whole time (laughs) The the lines are never good here, but at at any rate, and this is when we start getting into, you know, it's a science fiction movie, and I think up to that point, science fiction always owes us the you blew it up moment. Uh, Carousel is a lie, Sorglent Green is people, you gotta have that twist in which the world we thought we were in is radically different. But I don't think it's a surprise for the audience of this movie that the three people we were told that one that are now in a beach island living happily are actually corpses that didn't make it and that there was doctored footage to show that they did make it. That basically no one has a chance to live Running Man. You always die if you play Running Man. I'm shocked that they just keep the bodies laying around and I want to know how they pull those cameras tight enough so the audience can't see them because there's going to be a whole fight. Fireball, the next stalker to show up with a not just a flamethrower, but also a jetpack, which is amazing. Sure. Like, the whole fight's going to take place in this, like, rundown locker room with these corpses, but the audience, I guess, doesn't catch on what's in there. And later he televises it, and I don't even think they make it clear. Like, they say this person's on a beach and cut to a corpse, but they have to look at name tags. I mean, these are decomposed bodies. These look like one-eyed Willie down there. So <laughs> how does any audience realize what they're seeing is the actual corpse of these people? And yeah, crematorium, anybody? I don't know that it benefits the message of the underground to promote that no one lives running man. I don't think anyone watches the show hoping that the runner gets to the end. That wasn't the sense that I got. They were rooting for the stalker to get him in a creative way. So the fact that the three people that supposedly have one didn't win, I don't think would hurt the ratings. I think, though, people don't just watch for the blood that they have the hope that there is the bets that there is the thought that most people die but every so often one wins i gotta think that even back in the days of christians versus lions every so often somebody would want to see a christian win if it was you know you want a little bit of suspense in the outcome and so while very few people have ever won the fact that they tout these three winners gives the people hope. It is hope that keeps people down. If you have no hope, you fight back. As long as there's that chance. Vegas runs by these rules. The reason a slot machine pays out ever is because if they didn't, you wouldn't give them any more money. But the difference is the contestants aren't average people. They're hardened criminals that you want to see get capital punishment. So if you hope not to lose in The Running Man, don't commit a crime. (laughs) True, but... They're saying they're served their debt to society through running. I mean, this is their jail sentence. 
I'd be mad about that. Are you telling me the butcher of Bakersfield can run for four miles and that gets him <laughs> off? They get you off for 60 murders. Yeah, I don't think that's very fair. But at any rate, I think that you always need to come up with this kind of twist, but they didn't frame it right. And so it kind of feels hollow here. And I actually feel like it's too bad because I actually think my favorite stalker is Fireball, but I don't feel like he gets a particularly great end here. I mean, he, he what a hot head. How about a light? Yeah, I, I do like Fireball because... I talked about those crowd shots. We kept seeing this crowd shot, and there was this large African-American with white streaks in his hair up front. And I'm like, that guy has a striking look. I had no idea that at an hour into the movie, he was going to suit up with a jetpack and a flamethrower and be one of the stalkers. I liked how he was embedded in the audience in that way. And If they showed him earlier, I didn't catch it because of the goggles and everything. And... Yeah, he has a nice outfit and everything like that, but he does kind of go down easy. I don't know why they have these tanks of flammable fluid just lying around, and, and that isn't even what kills him. He just dies because they pull his fuel hose, and then Richard's found some road flares, but... At this point, we're over an hour into the movie. We are racing towards the climax, and that's not even our last stalker. We've been cutting back to Jesse Ventura, or as he's called, Captain Freedom, in like a locker room. And that awful wig. Yeah. <laughs> he's like the retired superstar that now just gets to do the commentator gig. He really doesn't. Which is what he was doing in the WWF at the time. He was the Ryan Seacrest of this. He's not going to sing. He's just going to chat up with all the singers. Yeah, but the difference is he he had talent. He was once one of the singers. Ryan Seacrest has no talent. But yeah, I don't get Captain Freedom. Like you know, he walks in. He's got this goofy outfit that looks like some bad robot costume I made for Halloween when I was seven. And he's like, I don't need these gimmicks. I I didn't get the sense that he was quitting. I just thought he wanted to go in there and fight man to man. But he's gone. Like, after he tells Killian he doesn't want to wear that costume, Jesse Ventura is out of the film. Except for the digital matting. No, no, no. It's a much better twist than the dead corpse thing. When he comes in in that outfit and says, I don't need this, we think he's railing against this silly-ass costume. What he's railing against is the fact that he's being forced to fake a win. He wants to go and fight Arnold. He wants to win. He wants to kill Ben Richards. But Killian's like, no, we're bringing you out of retirement to kill a stunt double, and we're going to CGI Richard's face on it. That's what's pissing him so off. So he really fought a stunt double and killed him? Yes. I thought they did digital matting on both the contestants. No, we see him in that scene, and then they replace with Richard's. Yeah, I wasn't sure how much was CGI. I, I, oddly enough, this is exactly how they will do the Terminator on Terminator fight in that last Genesis movie. It's <laughs> CGI creations to create the illusion that two people that aren't in the same room together are fighting. But, I mean, if you're going to go that far, you wouldn't have to kill anybody. But maybe the point is that there was an innocent person that did die. The they specifically say to... Killian, you didn't have to kill him, and he doesn't care. Oh, I missed that line. Okay. Well, at any rate, that's that, that seems like the right impulse here. It is a callous network, so that they would have, yeah, somebody that's just going to be sacrificed in a fake fight. 
yeah, that seems to be a good gimmick. That said, I do feel like Ventura should have had a real face-off with Ben at some point in this movie, in this climax. I Yeah, I swore that they were going to face off once Richards gets back into the studio after he kills Killian. Like, I swore that, like, there's got to be that final face-off. Yeah, I, I feel like the climax should have been very different than what we get. And that it sounds like it was. It sounds like they had a very different idea. And then it just became, oh, here's the underground and it's right here in the arena. And (laughs) we'll just go grab our guns and just storm the studio. The end. I mean, very poor wrap up. Yeah, it feels like it's out of nowhere. It feels like we've cut to a different Arnold film. Like we've changed the channel and now we are seeing Commando or something like that. Or we're on Total Recall. We got the Martian rebellions fighting. Yeah. And... They are storming the studio, and this is where Richards, he refused the call earlier for taking on the hero's journey. He's been forced into everything, forced to survive. He has a chance to do what he did before when asked to join the resistance and run. He ran last time. Now he's like, you people need a leader with experience, and he's going to lead them into combat. That is his arc. I saw, uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, I, well, I don't no, know. No, it what. is his arc. <laughs> you well, I don't know what, how much leading he really does here in the end. I mean, there's there's a lot of running around and things get shot up, but I, I don't. He led this rebellion as well as he led California when he was governor. <laughs> yeah, I don't get the sense that there was any real vision here, but I guess the vision is not what Arnold does. And he does face off against Killian and, you know... It's not much of a fight, (laughs) Richard Dawson versus Arnold. (laughs) It's all about how he's going to give the poetic justice. We know Arnold will win, of course, and we know he's going to do it with a line. So what's it going to be? They're going to have Killian flying into one of his own advertisements. He's been plugging this Cadre Cola, so that's basically what's going to kill him. The implication that... Because he's such a sellout shill, he deserves to die for that. And in the 80s, that was a very common attitude. I don't know that it's changed, but yes. Yeah, I agree. It's an easy tack to take against someone that's on television that they're a sellout. And why not? We want to see Killian punished. I didn't. I know what you mean, because he is the best part. I could have lived with him surviving for a sequel, but I do think it's Arnold has to get some kind of victory on this guy. We we cannot have had him endure what he did and not kill Killian. Yeah, I just wonder who removed the safety net, because Killian just goes into the arena the same way everybody else did, down this really fun-looking tube that's like a high-speed slide but everybody else was caught by a safety net that net is gone and that's why he crashes into the sign and explodes no one reset it they didn't know he was coming down meanwhile amber actually gets a kill in she does something useful she has a rematch against dynamo and shoots the sprinkler system and he fries Mm -hmm. with his pants i always wondered why his pants were down but i guess that's because he pissed himself is the director comments yep and we should also say they've the underground has shown the actual footage from the Bakersfield massacre. So I don't know, like we don't get that shot, like where people are rebelling at the end or people are like picking up arms to fight the government. We're going to get this really weird ending where Ben and Amber are just kissing. Uh, People are cheering outside about that. People are stupid. Let's face it. They're easily manipulated and they're (laughs) stupid and they'll yell about anything. Arnold won. So Arnold gets the cheers and, Good luck leading L.A. That's all I can say. I hope it goes better for you than it did in 2003. (laughs) He got reelected. So some people thought he did okay. 
But do you think he did okay here? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Running Man? Jacob. You know, Total Recall was thrown around a lot, and I definitely felt that flavor while I was watching this. This is like Total Recall light, Verhoeven light here. Like, the satire is not quite as sharp. Like, the fact that this comes down to, ooh, we're controlling you with TV. I don't know. Today, that seems really cliche. Maybe in the 80s, that was more on point. But I, I like a lot of the vibe of this film. It, it's maybe not as an Arnold film, but... Richard Dawson, love him. But yeah, best part of this movie. He he is so on point as the soiree uh, television game show host, and he really makes this world for me. It really sells how grimy and, and underhanded this network and this government is, is his performance. But I, I enjoy most of this film. Like, yeah, the action's fun. It's not a great film, but it, it's a fun B-movie. It's a fun 80s action movie with, with the fights, with opera singing stalkers. Like, I, I like all the weird little... Uh, garnishes that they put on this otherwise just gladiator film so yeah this is a recommend for me Stuart. yeah i'm gonna eke it over the line with a green arrow as really jesus after all the shit you've talked that is that is the most shocking outcome more than somebody winning the running man I don't think I talk shit about the movie. I talk shit about Arnold. And I think I'm right to talk about Arnold. He's terrible in this movie. Usually when Arnold movies are good, he's working with a really strong visionary director. James Cameron, John McTiernan, Paul Vorhoven. Here he does not have that. And you can feel that. This movie feels like a trauma movie because there is no one with a real vision here guiding this movie. It is basically going over the line in the same reason that I gave Return to Salem's Lot a green arrow, uh, because I loved Sam Fuller in that movie so much. I'm doing the same thing for this running man because I love Dawson so much as the villain, because he steals every scene that he's in, because there are some laughs here at the expense of game shows and 80s tackiness and the solid gold dancers. I think it's mildly enjoyable, but it is not a great science fiction movie or action movie or really even an Arnold movie. I think that, yeah, basically see it for um, the game show guy. But it's a green arrow. And this is a green arrow for me all around. I mean, I think this kind of cyberpunk media commentary, this wasn't the first one to do it. We kept throwing around Verhoeven for stuff he was doing at the same time or later. Total Recall came later. Robocop came the same year. This film wasn't ripping them off, but I think about some other stuff. What I kept getting a vibe of from this is that 1985-86 show Max Headroom, 20 Minutes into the Future, where there was the network and everybody was watching blip vids and getting subliminal messages and we get shots of people just staring blankly into their sets and things like that. I think we could say The Running Man may have been the parents of reality TV, but Max Headroom had a lot of the same type of commentary first. That's a smarter show, though. I mean, you got to give credit to the TV show being weirder and and more creative than this. Yeah, but this is covering some of the same ground, and I really loved that Max Headroom show, and this came around the same time, hitting around the same topics. So it's a it's very of the moment in that regard. And yes, Arnold, the only thing I can ding this about is some of the lighting is a little bit dim because they ran out of money, and some of the action could be better staged, and Arnold's lines could be 
better. I'd say, again, all of them are par, except for the Sub-Zero is subpar. The rest, they're fine lines. There's, I really do like I'll Be Back only in a rerun. I mean, he's been saying I'll Be Back for years. That's the perfect reply. That wasn't Arnold's line. That was Dawson's line. I know, but it's it's a good comeback. It's a good pairing with Arnold's classic line. Dawson's good. Arnold has the shit line. (laughs) Well, yeah, but it's the same screenwriter. Dawson didn't come up with it. DeSouza did. I'm saying when you see an Arnold action movie in the 80s, you expect him to punny it up. And all his puns thud. They're terrible. They're they are the same as... You don't like Arnold movies. I like Red Heat. I like Commando. I like these movies he did that were straight action. And this is on the same level as those. Yes, when you don't have James Cameron writing the lines, you don't get that good a line. Stick but around is-, is better than anything in this movie. <laughs> but oh. yet everything in this movie, including now Plane Zero, is better than you're not putting me in the cooler. I don't know. I got a lot of Batman and Robin in this. I, I did not. Batman and Robin. You're coming around, Stuart. You're coming around. The only Batman and Robin I got off this was the Christmas tree dynamo outfit. The whole look of this movie. This movie, though, is fun. It is really over-the-top, gregarious fun. <laughs> now, I know not everybody's going to think this. When I was watching this movie with Marjorie... We had some house guests, some 20-somethings, who were staying with us from out of town. And the guy walked in and looked at this movie on Blu-ray, and he's like, Man, this is a really old movie, isn't it? And then left. That's all he had to say about it. So, if you don't get down with the cheaper 80s aesthetic, skip it. But yeah, this is in the upper 50% of Arnold movies for me. And... Even though it's so completely not tied to the original book, it's got a network, it's got a guy named Ben Richards, it's got him being made offer to be a hunter, but it's so disconnected, yet it's probably still one of my favorite Stephen King-attached films. If we ever finish this King retrospective and we get to ranking all the films, this one's going to be up there. It's it's not shining. Oh, are we going to rank all of them at some point? <laughs> Well, yeah, I gave it a green arrow. Of course, it's going to be in the minority. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? The source material is not that great. The fact that this doesn't honor that, I don't think is a problem. I don't think if you went back and made a more faithful version that it would be particularly rewarding. I think that this is C-level Stephen King effort, and I think what they did is more fun than what's on the page. I like what's on the page. I'm behind on books and nachos. I just got the dead zone out, but I will be getting to The Running Man later this year. I'll go into it in depth. I like the book better than you did. That kind of a film would be a totally different film. That would be like making The Fugitive, because it's that kind of running. It can be done. It could be done very well, but... You'd have to modernize it. You'd have to update its political commentary. I mean, he wrote this in the 70s, looking at a Nixon America as a future. You, you, With a little bit of updating, a little bit of tweaking, you could have an adjustment bureau on your hands. I say do it for real. I know that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck actually tried to get this on the air. There was going to be a reality show in the 2000s called The Running Man, where someone was literally, I think they had to get from like New York to California, and everyone was a player. If you saw this guy running in your hometown, you could 
have some way of stopping. They couldn't figure out a way to prevent this guy from not being in harm's way. That was the thing. They were really worried what Americans would do to prevent the runner from getting by them. Like, if you knew you were going to get a cash reward and you saw him going by your house, wouldn't your (laughs) mind go to some dark places in order to get that cash? They ultimately, too much liability, they did not put it on the air, but they really strongly looked at making this a real show. I think that's what you do. Don't make a sequel. Don't make a reboot. See if you can actually... Wait for us to become even more savage. We're almost there. Yeah, I'm like, fuck this. No, no, that is not what I really want. That's horrible. (laughs) That's evil. That's... No. Oh, you're not evil. Okay, all right. I I wouldn't want to offend you. All right. It actually, you have found some place where I am offendable and hit it. Oh, okay. If you're not being satirical in that and it didn't sound like you were, I'm appalled. <laughs> I was kind of half being satirical. I do think we're there. I mean, honestly, I think we're there. I think they did the best they could do of this with the Amazing Race, where they had a bunch of teams competing to travel great distances. An American Gladiator. I mean, you could mix the two together. You could get closer to it. I mean, I'm not advocating really killing contestants on television, I don't think, until, (laughs) you know... We it's, get there. It, the one that they kept talking about in the commentaries was Fear Factor, and that is kind of close. Yeah. They had one where you had to drink horse semen. It's at least climbing for dollars bad, right? Where the dogs were chomping at the bottom and somebody's trying to climb a rope like gym class. Yes. Isn't that jackass? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In 1987, this felt outrageous. In 2016, this feels one step removed. I mean, we're close to this, but it is just a little bit beyond anything we would attempt today. But next year, I don't know. President Trump will make it all okay. We'll we'll go for it when he's there. <laughs> yeah, just wait till the Republican National Convention. It's probably going to look like this. <laughs> Well, with that, we are running away from Stephen King for a while so Arnie can catch up on books and nachos. We will get back to King this fall. We always like to do horror around Halloween, and we are planning to do a King marathon. We got coming up next is different seasons where they've made movies of three of those four novellas, Stand By Me, Apt Pupil, and the Shawshank Redemptions. A couple of those are the most acclaimed King films ever. A pupil? Yeah. <laughs> can't stop talking about a pupil. But uh, we're also going to get to George Romero's Creep Show and the two sequels that spun off of that as well. I'm looking forward to that even more. Oh, I got stories about Creep Show. Phobias came from that movie. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm looking forward to two more that, assuming Hollywood doesn't shift their schedule and we have some theatrical thing to tie into, we're planning on getting to, first, Christine. Now, in just a few weeks, we're reviewing John Carpenter with Big Trouble in Little China as part of our gold donation series that is running right now. Oh, that's right. He did make that movie. I didn't realize it was Carpenter. I didn't put that together, but it is. It's a Carpenter Stephen King movie. Wow. Never seen it. Whoa, you've never seen it? Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Man, uh, If we're going to have a lot to talk about. I just hope we can get through it without you guys calling me Cuntingham for 90 minutes. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> I know what that means. I have read the book. 
but we're doing John Carpenter, Big Trouble in Little China in just a few weeks. And then I'm really looking forward to doing Christine this fall. Carpenter and King, two masters of horror. Are they two great tastes that taste great together? And then Pet Cemetery, King's darkest book, the one he never wanted to publish. His wife begged him not to write. Came out in a movie that was one of the first King actually liked of his works. And such a great Ramon song. And then there's that sequel. We'll be covering that too. That sequel, I have seen it once, and I remember it as being an interesting debacle. Like, all I remember is Edward Furlong in an incestuous relationship with his dead mother. So lots to talk about when we get back to King this fall. And meantime, join me all through the summer and read with me at booksandnachos.com as I catch up on these books so that when we get to those later movies, I will be keeping up with the books and nachos in time. Looking forward to that a lot. I, I have been reading the books and I can't wait to hear your take on those. And then next week, we've got Captain America Civil War. I think a lot of people are waiting for that one, and I am too. You know, I may be a little superhero fatigued at this point. I can't lie. It's been a lot of meh for me when I go to the theaters, but I think I'm going to like this one, and I think there'll be a lot to talk about when we see Cap go versus Iron Man. And do remember to check out our donation series. If you donate right now, you get two Men in Black movie reviews immediately. Three is out this Friday. It's $10 or more. You get those three. Then later this summer, two Independence Days. And next week starts our gold series with Critters. And then later, John Carpenter with Big Trouble in Little China. You can get up to a total of 14 movie reviews. Find out which ones and how by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And we'll be right back after these important messages. Ladies and gentlemen, this is just horrible. Words can't express what we're all feeling at this very moment. Great champion is fallen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Well, he's still alive, aren't you? Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. Welcome to the People's Network. We've been waiting for you. And come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and dozens more in our archive section. But why should I? Because I'm going to say, please... Also at our site, hear reviews of other films such as Maniac, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Uplinks, underground. Uplinks, underground. You guys don't shut up, I'm going to uplink your ass. You'll be underground. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. We give them what they want. We're number one, Ben. That's all that counts. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Guess they want us to stay. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Don't let us die for nothing. Listen, we're counting on you. Don't let us down. 
You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Money. That's what I need. Money. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. It's nothing to do with people, it's to do with the rating. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Shut on the deadline or we all lose our heads. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. You're not ready to act? Give me a break and shut up. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. They punished crime and served the law as patriots. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. We don't like films! Tell us all about her! Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. The Running Man has been brought to you by Breakaway Paramilitary Uniforms, Ortho Pure Procreation Pills. And Cadre Cola, it hits the spot. Promotional considerations paid for by Kelton Flamethrowers, Wainwright Electrical Launchers, and Hammond and Gates Chainsaws. Damon Gillian's Wardrobe by Chez Antoine, 19th century craftsmanship for the 21st century man. Cadre Trooper and Studio Guard Sidearms provided by Colchester, the Pistol of Patriots. Remember, Tickets for the ICS Studio Tour are always available for Class A citizens in good standing. If you'd like to be a contestant on The Running Man, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to ICS Talent Hunt, care of your local affiliate, and then go out and do something really despicable. I'm Phil Hilton. Good night and take care. God, God, go to commercial. Jesus Christ. Cut! Go to commercial! Arnie, give him the plot, and we'll get into it. By 2017, the world economy has collapsed. Insert presidential election here. Food, natural resources, and oil are in short supply. A police state divided into paramilitary zones rules with an iron hand. Television is controlled by the state, and a sadistic game show called The Running Man has become the most popular program in history. Oh, Jesus Christ, that's not my plot summary, that's the opening scroll! I'm like, is that what you're, I'm like, yeah. this sounds uh, familiar. <laughs> All of a sudden I noticed there were notes in my plot summary, and I'm like, God, I spent a long time on this. Starting over. <laughs> with the help of William Laughlin, with the help of William Laughlin, 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 I can't say that name ever, Laughlin. 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 <laughs> With the help Laughlin, of Nevada. 